Well, we are in John chapter 16 in a section of that chapter scholars often call uh, the great reversal. And really, we are in week two of this section. And last week, we saw how Jesus was patient and, and gentle with his disciples in their confusion and inability to make sense of what he was teaching them. And he, he consistently does that with them throughout uh, the Gospels. And we will see that again this week, too. And by the way, this is how he treats his modern disciples as well. This is how he treats us, too. And we saw also how Jesus understood his own uh, coming death and resurrection and the, the consequent pouring out of the Holy Spirit as the beginning and the inbreaking of his kingdom and really the beginning of the new creation that is already here, but obviously not yet fully here. And this is what, of course, the Old Testament has been anticipating since the promise of a Redeemer was made going all the way back to Eve. And in light of the inbreaking of this new creation, one of the foremost ways we experience this and, and participate in it, even as we are, are still clearly living in what Paul calls this present evil age, is that as his disciples, as his people and members of his kingdom, we have been given the privilege, the right to come boldly into the throne room of God through prayer, calling on God as our Father. And it is though uh, Jesus has, has put his arm around us and said, what is mine is yours. And my Father is now your Father. Let, let's go see him together. So for now, we, we have this incredible privilege in, in prayer. In the life to come, we will have this privilege bodily, bodily, as in face-to-face -face communion with God the Father, something even Moses in his day did not enjoy. Well, that's the review leading us up to verse 25 of chapter 16. Let me read for us. I have set these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us as we seek to meditate on this word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the access and the privilege we have to you right now, that we can boldly come before you and ask of you, and you listen and you respond. We thank you for our brother Jesus, who is the trailblazer, as, as Hebrews chapter 12 speaks of him that he has made a way for us. He is our great high priest. And so we pray now that what we do would glorify him and that through your spirit, we would learn more and more deeply of how much you do love us and how much you care for us and what you have intended for us. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, let me remind you that the chapters 13 through 17, you can kind of get lost in the weeds since we just take a little block at a time, but chapters 13 through 17 form the final block of Jesus's teaching to his disciples about what life will be like for them uh, after he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and is interceding for them through the Spirit. And the disciples are filled with anxiety and fear about the prospect of him going, and they don't understand what he means. So as they see it, Jesus is effectively, though they probably wouldn't say this, but he is effectively abandoning them to do the work of the kingdom by themselves. And, and for them, how can it possibly be better for Jesus to leave them even as he's promised to be with them in spirit? You know, even as I say that, it, it can sound a little thin, right? Because if I were to say to you, I'm going to be gone next Sunday, which I am, but I will be with you in spirit. You know that means I will, I will be thinking about you. I'll be praying for you, perhaps. I, I, I will be wishing I was here, but I'm not. I'm not here. But that's not true of Jesus. Our problem, like the disciples' problem, is that we, we undervalue the role of the spirit in our lives. And we don't take seriously that we are literally not figuratively, literally in union with Christ right now, both as individuals. I mean, Jesus is with you. He has made his home in you everywhere you go, but also as a people together. You know, sometimes people come into a worship service like this one and they wonder why we say so many things together. This is why. We are one people and it's a sign. It's a symbol that we are one people in Christ, united by the same Spirit. So here in verses 25 through 28, Jesus tells them several important things to help ease their anxiety and their confusion. He tells them, for example, that he's been intentionally speaking to them in figures of speech, but soon enough, he, he won't do that anymore. And the reason is that to, to really understand what he's been teaching them, they need to experience it. They, they need to see it for themselves. I mean, everything he's been teaching them. And so he uses figures of speech, much like John uses incredibly vivid and symbolic imagery from the Old Testament in the book of Revelation to, to help prepare our imaginations for, for what's coming. So when Jesus, for example, washes their feet, which we saw him do earlier in this series, when he washes their feet then tells them to do that too, or he says he's the vine and they're the branches, he's not telling them to start a foot washing ministry or telling them like, no, 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 in reality, you're not a human, you're a plant. No, these are our vivid ways of teaching them the character and the relationship and the life patterns of what it is to be his disciples. And those images will take on depth and meaning after They've witnessed and experienced what's coming. But in the moment, this doesn't mean very much to them, just as you know, to unbelievers or outsiders, it seems outlandish, if not foolish, for a group of people to gather together to sing and to pray and to say these old words together and to meditate on an ancient text about a God they cannot see. But after his death and resurrection, after Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out, all this stuff will, will make perfect sense to his disciples. Well, Jesus continues, and he says that in that day, when that, those events 
have happened, when they finally get it, they will see just how big of a deal it is that they have direct access to the Father through Him. That they can go boldly to the Father with their wants or fears or what have you is the greatest treasure they, and really by extension, we have been given. So, for example, when we do the pastoral prayer every week, I know the temptation is to nod out. I know the temptation is to, in the middle of it, because it goes, what, a minute and a half, two minutes, to lose your place or critique the man who's praying or whatever. You're missing in that moment. Just as that moment is now, we have access to God the Father who made all things. That is no little thing that is happening when we pray. It is not. And they have this privilege because the Father, it says, loves them. Now, it's easy to misread verse 27 as saying, God the Father loves the disciples as a result of their love for Jesus and because they have believed he is the Son of God, as in the Father's love is contingent, as it's a response to the disciples' first loving. But that that does not take the entire book of John into context. So God the Father, if you read the whole book of John, God the Father so loves the world, remember that passage? He so loves the world, including these hard-headed and confused disciples, men who are just like us, that he sent his son into the world so that whosoever believes in him would have eternal life. So God's love always, it always precedes our love for him. You know, like children to their parents, our love is always in response to his love. God doesn't love us because we believe in Jesus. No, God's love is not a response to our actions. No, God loves us first. And sending Jesus into the world is the tangible demonstration of his love for his people and his enemies. And I can't say this strongly enough. You know, God's action begins and it ends with his love. And to miss this is frankly to miss the gospel. So just as Jesus was sent in love to the world by the Father, so Jesus is returning to the Father and he's doing this out of love for his people too. The pouring out of the Spirit, you see, is also an act of love. That you know the Father without having seen him, that you love Jesus without having seen him is a testimony to God's love for you as poured out through his Spirit. Why? Because without his spirit, you would not believe. I mean, none of this stuff would make sense to you. In fact, everything Jesus teaches, if you really break it down and really investigate it, and and the implications of everything he says, it's ludicrous. It's ludicrous to live your life that way. No one chooses this life without the spirit acting upon him. Well, in verses 29 through 31, The disciples respond to Jesus by saying, okay, we get it now. Now you're speaking plainly. We can see that you know all things and you don't need us to question you. It's why we believe you came from God. Now think about this. It's hard to tell by the way we we structure sermons and all that, but just a minute earlier, they were murmuring to each other that they had no idea what he was talking about. And now they've got it. Well, Jesus's response says that, They don't get it. They don't get it, though they think they do. And the evidence, as Jesus tells them again, is that they will abandon him. 
And this is really important, especially as we, we live uh, in a part of the world where people just assume they've got this whole Christianity thing down, or, or worse, they believe they are really committed Christians and they, they've, they've got it all figured out. It's like what Gerald Borchert comments. He says, people may say they believe in Jesus, but that does not mean they have arrived at the point where their life patterns follow their beliefs. So it's easy to articulate some semblance of what the Bible teaches, some semblance of of basic Christian morality and belief, some basic knowledge of biblical stories, you know, like Noah and Jonah and David and Goliath. Though I have to say, you know, as an aside, you know, in my time volunteering at Fort Dale, it's clear, it's very clear, in fact, lots of kids who who claim to be Christian and, and who go to church, or at least they say they go to church, they don't know those stories. They don't know them. Biblical literacy among our youth and children in, in this broader community, frankly, it's, it's pretty abysmal. It's a very different thing, though, for our life patterns. You know, that is how, how we speak and act and how we approach our relationships, how we structure our time, how we structure our week, how we, we give ourselves to others. It's a very different thing for our life patterns to reflect Jesus's teaching and what we claim to be our deepest beliefs. It's why when someone tells me they're a Christian, but they treat the fundamental practices and habits of Christianity as optional, as things that they can take or leave as, as they feel like it, I tend to think of them the way Jesus responds to his disciples here. You got this whole Christian Christianity thing down? Okay. If you say so. Now, as a pastor, I'm not allowed to say that. I'm not Jesus, right? But that's what goes through my mind. You know, in light of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, I have no right, none, no right to make judgments on whether they actually know God or not. Only God knows such a thing. So I'm not denying anyone is a Christian or not. I just wait to see when their lives will start to, to match even just a little bit just a little bit, what they say is true. Well, that's Jesus to his disciples in this moment, except he just baldly calls them out. And it's interesting when you consider, for example, John chapter 2, verse 42, and again, John chapter 12, verses 42 through 43, those are both scenes where people claim to have some belief in Jesus, and and how much belief, we don't know. I don't even know what that means. But, But John says they believed but Jesus did not take them seriously. And the reason is simple enough. Their, their life patterns did not reflect their beliefs. So, for example, in the case of John chapter 12, it was some of the Jewish leadership who believed in Jesus but refused to confess him publicly for fear of being put out of the synagogues by the Pharisees. As John comments, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So they didn't want to risk losing their status. They wanted to continue to enjoy the respectability of their communities that was most often displayed for them in settings like their local synagogue. The disciples fear that Jesus will leave them and they will be all alone to to fend for themselves and they are imagining themselves, kind of like Peter's very hollow confession that he would die for Jesus that they'll have to basically steal themselves up for faithfulness. In reality, within a couple of hours, 
just about all of them will have abandoned Jesus. And so they fear, like the Jewish leadership, what life in Christ will cost them. Now, I'd be willing to bet that that nobody in in our community is really fearful of confessing Jesus. Though, you know, I have heard stories. Maybe someone might be fearful to confess certain doctrines and what that might mean for their church home or maybe their family dynamics, like, say, during Thanksgiving. And over the last eight years, you know, I've had lots of people tell me they'd like to come to this church, but they can't because of the backlash they face from former churches or from their families. The change just wouldn't be worth the junk they'd have to put up with. Unlike you know, the Jewish leadership and, and the disciples, the risk for, not, for us, it's, it's not political or violent. It's much more akin really to the rich young ruler who feared losing his comfort and his security for the sake of Jesus. And even then for us, you know, I would, I would argue that, that that risk itself is, is minimal. What we fear giving up is our personal pleasure or our ability to set our schedules or the freedom to structure our lives around what I want to do when I want to do it. My first real consistent preaching ministry began in 2004 as a college minister and over these These last 17 years, I can't believe it's been that long, but over these last 17 years, I've watched people choose sex over God or the pursuit of leisure and lifestyle over God or the pursuit of sports, especially travel ball over God, the pursuit of family over God, the pursuit of sleeping in over God. And as ridiculous as all those things sound, When put into perspective of what Jesus offers, it's clear that many, many people have beliefs that I think they honestly hold, but do not live by them. So Christianity may be the official statement they put out there. This is what defines my life. And you know what? They really believe it. But what's really driving their lives is something else. It's like what Rich Villados recently commented. He said, the sad irony of our day is we can be deeply committed to being a Christian, but not be deeply formed by Christ. Let me say that again, because it's important. We can be deeply committed to being a Christian, but not be deeply formed by Christ. And in my view, and of course, this is just my view. I'm just a guy. The pandemic is probably the revival so many Christians in this country have been praying for. But instead of that revival looking like, you know, a Billy Graham crusade or a promise keepers rally or a landslide election in favor of whatever political party we think is most like us, it's instead a winnowing. It's a narrowing down. It's a razor cutting away the dross. You know, I think the pandemic has has revealed what Christians really love and you know, what they're, they're really formed to. And that, that's certainly how it's worked for me. I have been convicted over and over again about a lot of things in my life over the last two years. And you know, for many of us, what we love most, what really has formed our lives is not the God of our beliefs, let alone his people or worship or things that he's given us to live by. Now he's something we value. And maybe he's the highest value, but he's not something we are formed by. It's like what John Piper famously said, and 
though I respect Piper, I am not a John Piper fan at all, but I think he's right on this when he says, I am astonished at people who say they believe in God, but live as if happiness is found by giving him 2% of their attention. So for example, usually after I mention stuff like this, because it's uncomfortable, we typically get a bump in attendance. And even when people aren't here, they do sometimes listen to the sermons online. And I know because I can see the number of downloads each sermon gets. That happened a year ago, for example, when I preached actually the most downloaded sermon of my career. Do you remember it? I bet you do. I used the example of how to make a lifelong SEC fan and pointed out how we wholeheartedly indoctrinate our children from cradle, you know, almost a grave into a lifestyle of our schools of choice, but we don't do that with our God. And my point with that sermon was that in the case of SEC schools, our life patterns actually match with our stated beliefs about them. What we value is, is what we are formed by. But when it comes to our God, not so much. And after that sermon, we got an attendance bump. That lasted, I don't know, a couple of weeks. And then we had a COVID spike and attendance fell back down. And I, I preached on this topic a few weeks ago too. And again, we got a bump, but it settled back down again. So in other words, we believe we should value God above all things. And perhaps maybe I convicted you on that. But our life patterns show a different set of beliefs and values at work, and we quickly return to them. So just as the disciples reflected the actual content of their stated beliefs when they abandoned Jesus, so we often reflect the actual content of our beliefs with what we choose to do, for example, with the Lord's Day. And if this is how many of us treat the Lord's Day, you know, one of the Ten Commandments, how are we treating God the other six days of the week? And it's telling that what caused the disciples to, to abandon Jesus was the threat of violence. What moves us to abandon him is the loss of a couple of hours of comfort. Even as Jesus knows this, though, this is really important. Even as Jesus knows this about his disciples, and by implication, he knows these things about us, he does not abandon his disciples, though they soon will abandon him. The disciples are no better than Adam, who was enticed to break faith with God, but Jesus the better Adam does not break faith with his God or his people. You see, Jesus is the walking, talking embodiment of Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So even as his disciples their stated beliefs will soon be revealed to be pretty much hollow. He promises to comfort them. As Borchert again says, he says, the glue of Christianity is not the disciples. It is Jesus who will not abandon the disciples or let them become orphans, even though they would leave Jesus when the pressures came. So let me say that again. The glue of Christianity, which is another way of saying the glue of your life, is not your faithfulness. It is God's faithfulness to you. You know, as Jesus says, in the world, there is only tribulation. There's death. But in him, and 
that phrase is a perfect example of union with Christ that we've been talking about in our evening study. In him, in union with him, there is peace. And this peace is is not the absence of pain or suffering or sadness. No, Jesus is very candid about how we may really struggle for his sake. The world cannot offer the kind of peace Jesus does. The best the world can offer is really the illusion of security or comfort or some diversion or dopamine hits of momentary pleasure. More often than not, when the world says peace, ironically, it usually means violence. The peace on offer with Jesus is the peace that surpasses our circumstances, our pain, even our understanding. The peace he offers is not found by denying any of this stuff. It's not found by denying your circumstances as if you're like a stoic. No, it's found in the midst of them. We have this peace, not because we are in control of our circumstances at all. We're not. Or have found the right company, right, that can provide a product for us at a reasonable monthly rate. We have this peace, but because we are in Christ and he is ruling over all things. So peace is not a state of being. It's not a mindset. It's not being mindful. It's not a detached sort of stoicism where we act as if we're not in pain. No, peace is a person. Peace is a person. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Because God himself has made his home in us. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with us. So whether we live or die, we live to Christ because as Jesus says here, he has overcome the world. His death, his resurrection, his ascension has overcome the world and we are in him. He is the rock of ages who is a cleft for us. That is why we can sing despite our circumstances, maybe because of our circumstances, it is well. Now, does it appear that way to us, especially in the moment? No, no. This is why when I walk into a hospital room, I don't say, hey, it is well. Of course not. Is it true? Yes. Would I dare say that? No, because in the moment it appears like the world is on fire. And in a sense, you know what? It is. It is. But that's nothing new. The world has been on fire since it fell into sin. And yet God's persistent claim is that he has overcome the world. And I love that Jesus tells them this statement. I have overcome the world right before he will go die because it will look like certain defeat. I mean, how can crucifixion, how can crucifixion in any sense be a triumph? The world thinks it's one. But the great reversal is that through dying to the world, Jesus has conquered it. In fact, he has shown his great love for the world. It's why I I love Christianity. I love Christianity and I'm convinced of its truthfulness because it is a reversal of everything the world takes to be true and good and right. And I've sampled the world forever. Do you want life? Sacrifice yourself. Do you want love and happiness? Give yourself away. You want to be rich? Make God your treasure. Do you want wisdom? Center your life on God and his word. Do you want freedom? Bind yourself to God and his ways and his people. Do you see it? 
Do you see how this works? The world offers answers to all those same questions, but the answer is always the same. Pursue you. And if you can't tell, the world's answer is not working. It's just not. You know, what's fascinating to me is that even though, excuse me, even as the world's GDP has grown exponentially over the last 40 years, the greatest growth of all world history, benefiting more people than ever before, where more people than any other time in human history globally are enjoying what would have been unthinkable even 60 years ago in places like Africa and India and South America, we are at the same time, at least in America, the unhappiest we have ever been. And that's saying something. And it's not as though disasters and tragedies are on the rise. They're about the same as they've always been. No, we are materially better than any other point in human history. And yet depression, anxiety, sadness, and loneliness are at all-time highs. We are materially rich and spiritually poor, and it's killing us. As Matt Smethurst put it, he says, when self becomes deity... That is, when self becomes a god, denying it becomes blasphemy. And so, you know, few people, including Christians, are willing to find happiness by denying themselves. It's like what Tim Keller observed all the way back in 2013. He writes, or he said, this was in a lecture, the younger generation is interested and desirous of community. You know, so for example, we were talking about people at that time who would have been in their mid-20s to early 30s, so this would now be people who are in their mid-30s and early 40s. This is who Tim Keller's talking about. He says, on the other hand, the younger generation doesn't want to make the sacrifices that enable community to happen, which means you have to limit your options. You can't just travel every weekend. You can't just move every two years. You can't just live any way you want. So many of the commitments and sacrifices you've got to make in order to be part of a community and the curtailments of the freedom that goes with that, young people don't want. They want community. And everyone says they want it and value it, yet they're not willing to pay the price. And again, he said that in 2013. Eight years later in a a pandemic, and it's no wonder that the most consistent age group attending our church, and it's not just our church, this is across the board. I've asked lots of pastors this. It's all 50 years of age and older. As Mark Devers recently commented, he said, listening to many Christians today, my weekend seems to be one of the most, their most prized possessions. Can anyone help me find where this is in the Bible? And he's not saying enjoying the weekend is a bad thing. He's not saying that. He's saying for many people, including Christians, it has become the sacred time of the South, that they are unwilling to sacrifice for anything, including God himself. And it's like what Alan Nobles writes in his his new book. He says, there will come times in your life when you will be obligated as Christians to deny some pleasure, some intimacy, something or someone genuinely lovely because you are not your own but belong to God and through him to your family and your neighbor as well. It doesn't matter how badly you want it, how good it feels, 
how much you are missing out on, or, or how supportive our contemporary society is. We must accept our responsibilities to God, the church, our family, and our neighbors. That's the great reversal. That's the great reversal. God has overcome the world, and with it, the tyranny, and it is a tyranny, of selfishly pursuing yourself above all others and the slavery to comfort that comes with it. You know, to riff on G.K. Chesterton, what, what Jesus is offering has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. We think what Jesus asks of us is unreasonable or, or will lead to a lack of happiness as if, as if we are actually happy now. Not because we've genuinely tried to do what God teaches us to do, but rather because we look at the risk to our current way of life and we think we'd rather not try to do it at all. And what I find then so compelling, this is why we did this series. We're not done, by the way. What I find so compelling about the book of John and this, this section of teaching, and you can also see this in John's letters, just go read first, second, third John, or the book of Revelation 2 is that, again, as, as Gerald Borchert comments, sections like this one, which we've been studying for 11 weeks now, is anything but defeatist. Even in the face of crucifixion and even in the face of his disciples' inability and their hard-heartedness. There's real victory in Christ, even as John is realistic about suffering and how hard it is to follow Jesus. And it is hard. It is hard, but it's worth it. You know, Jesus is not offering utopia. He's, he's not offering what the world offers. At the same time, you know, John writes to comfort and encourage his people who are struggling with anxiety and genuine concerns. Jesus is comforting to those who are struggling to keep the faith, which is every Christian I know. So for some of you, you know, he's calling you out and asking you to evaluate whether your life patterns in any way reflect what you say you believe. And you know what? That's grace. That's kindness. If he didn't love you and care for you, he wouldn't say a thing about it. He'd just let you die. But he's with you. He's with you. Believe it or not, I promise he is with you. For others, he's encouraging you to keep on struggling. He's with you too. What I love about Jesus is that, you know, he's not interested in moralism and he's not interested in making cultural Christians. Growing up, that's exactly what I hated about Christianity. Hated it. I wanted no part of that. Jesus wants no part of that too. No, he's interested in, in self-giving disciples whose lives are modeled on his life and his death and his resurrection. He wants can't say this strongly enough. He wants to give you life. He wants you to grow in him. He never tires of starting over with his people. He never tires of repentance. He is unbelievably patient and gentle, and he will not let you go. He will not. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. He will not let you go. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there is no God like you. A God who seeks out 
not perfect people, but sinful ones, it says you are mine. I thank you for your steadfastness. I thank you for your patience. I thank you for what a good teacher you are. I thank you for how you and you love your people with an endurance that never ends. Lord, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever. And I pray for me and I pray for us now that we would turn to a life of repentance, that we would seek you in every moment of our lives even as you seek us in every moment of our lives. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.